Over the past year, at both the World Meeting of Families and the Synod of the Family, the Church has reflected deeply on the challenges surrounding marriage and family life in our time. Now it's our turn. Join us today as we reflect on the nature, challenges, and the witness of marriage and family life with His Eminence Raymond Cardinal Burke, patron of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Today we'll be talking about the very important topic of marriage and family life. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at uh, Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And we are so happy to have His Eminence, Raymond Cardinal Burke. Um, uh, Cardinal Burke, you've been uh, installed first as the Bishop of La Crosse. That's right. Then you went in as the Archbishop uh, in St. Louis. You yes. were elected to the College of Cardinals. You have a doctorate in canon law, many years of study in Rome, and for many years you served in the Roman Curia in the Supreme Tribunal at the Apostolic Signatory, the Church's highest authority, uh, highest court authority. Uh, in 2014, Pope Francis named you the Cardinal Patronus of the Sovereign Order of Malta, a worldwide lay uh, organization working with the sick and the poor and in defense of the faith. So thank you for your courageous, bold stance for the faith. And you're also an alumnus of Franciscan University, honorary doctorate uh, right. a number of years ago. Yes. So just welcome, welcome, welcome home. Thank <laughs> you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, so today we're talking about a very uh, a timely topic. It's, it's, it's controversial. It's been talked about a lot in the church uh, race recently as the, the issue of marriage and family. Uh, St. John Paul II uh, described uh, the Holy Trinity as a family. Uh, what did he mean when he talked about the Holy Trinity as a family? Well, I think the easiest way to understand it is go, to go back to the story of the creation of man in the book of Genesis in which God speaks and he uh, says, let us create man in our own image and likeness. He speaks in the plural and he creates male and female. And it's very clear from that very first revelation that, uh, that in the creation itself, God intended that man and woman would participate in his selfless, enduring, and uh, procreative love. Mm -hmm. and, and that indeed is the, the great mystery of which St. Paul speaks in the letter to the Ephesians of the vocation to marriage. It is a, a participation, a very privileged participation in, in divine love. And so uh, the, even as the Holy Trinity is the, how should we say, the archetype mm -hmm. of the family, man and woman are called through their a response to the gift of the grace of divine love mm -hmm. to reproduce that family life which is, how, how should we say, typical of the life of God of the Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. And our Lord in, in the Gospel too, in, in His response to the, the Pharisees who were trying to trip Him up by saying, well, Moses permitted divorce and so forth, which of course would be a contradiction to enduring love, to faithful love. 
And our Lord responded and said, he permitted this because of your hardness of heart, but it was not so from the beginning. Mm. And so we, we see that the nature of marriage is both revealed naturally in nature itself in the very act of creation, and that our Lord himself gives his grace to it, redeems, restores marriage to, to its original dignity and gives it the grace so that any couple whom God calls to the married life, no matter what their struggles or difficulties, they have the grace to live this divine love. Mm, mm, that is powerful. You know, and you took your interpretive cue mm. from St. Paul in Ephesians 5 because he's citing Genesis yeah, 1 exactly and 2. Right. This mystery is a profound one, the two become one. And I think you are also underscoring something that has to be recovered by theologians. You know, it wasn't just John Paul who spoke of the Trinity as a divine family. It was Pope Benedict on the Feast of the Holy Family. Yes. And here's a theologian who has a reputation for much greater precision and caution, and yet he would go that far as well. And there's a sense in which, well, you know, from all eternity, God is not a creator because creation is not eternal, but he is an eternal father. And so he's eternally fathering a son. The net effect theologically is a divine family in the love of the Holy Spirit, the bond of their interpersonal communion. Now, we've got to recognize that whenever you apply analogy, the dissimilarities are greater than the similarities, but that doesn't make God less of a father than me. It makes him much better, much more. He's the only perfect father. And it also kind of corrects our vision so the, the, the creaturely tail isn't wagging the uncreated dog. He's more of a family that what we see in the Holy Trinity really is the paradigm for the family and not just, well, it helps us to see that the family is not just a biological unit or even a sociological unit. It is the image and likeness of the mystery of God's own inner life. And, you know, that might seem lofty and yet it, it, in, in some ways it's more practical than anything else. The grace, the divine grace permeates every aspect of the marital life so that the biological is not insignificant, the social, all those aspects are not insignificant, but they're now permeated with the, with the divine love, with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and uh, that elevates the, the whole married life uh, uh, to a, a degree that we simply are in awe of, as St. Saint, Saint right. Paul was when he said, this is a great mystery. Yeah. You know, he created the, the animals before he created man in Genesis mm -hmm. 1, and presumably they were male and female also. Yes, but nothing is said of gender distinctions yeah. because that's just biology, that's just plumbing. Sure. But for us, <laughs> it really involves something more profound that points to what Christ... There's a, a, a lovely uh, line from uh, Fulton Sheen uh, about this business. He said, God was in love, but he could not keep the secret. And mm. the telling of it became creation. Yes. He also went on to say that having created Adam, he sort of scratched his head and said, I can do better. And then he makes Eve. Yes. And she is closer to the mystery. And it is a, a stunning paradox that on the one hand, nothing is more ordinary or prosaic uh, or banal than marriage. Yes. Yeah. Nothing could be plainer than making babies, and yet it is so exalting, uh, so incomprehensible a mystery, and somehow tied theologically to God. Yeah. I mean, his expression of love uh, is life. He creates. Yes, he and wants. That's how he, he creates new sons If and you daughters. want babies, then yes. you have to somehow bless the sexual exactly. union and be open to life, be surprised exactly. by life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when you think about the, the importance of this topic, you know, we're, we're, we're right now elevating this to a whole new level that it, this conversation isn't happening in, uh, over the water coolers. But that's the reality is that if, if we want to understand marriage and family, we have to go back 
to the beginning, spirit. to God's design, and even to God Himself. Uh, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That there is a, you know, you, you talk about the Father, you talk about the Bridegroom, uh, Christ, the Bridegroom. Yes, and these are, as you said, are, are, are analogies and there's so many dissimilarities between what we know as marriage and what the, the Trinity knows as family life, if you will. But there is so much there that we need to draw on and not just fall into the biological. Because that's true, but it's, 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 it's the sacramental view of the world. The analogy, deeper. Yes, and the analogy is not an idea. The, mm. the analogy is based on a participation in the right. being of God. And that we have to keep in mind. We're not talking here about some philosophy or some, right. some philosophical theory and so forth. We're talking about a reality. And as Dr. Hahn pointed out so well, of course, the dissimilarities between God and ourselves are, are far greater than the similarities. Right. But the reality is, is that there is a similarity by His will, uh, a call to participate. Yeah. I mean, God is a community of persons. Mm. Chesterton famously said, it isn't well for God to be alone. He's That's not right. alone. We're not alone. But between the two, there are striking dissimilarities. Right. That's the right. whole truth of the analogy of being. But I'm always reminded of something Catherine of Siena said, because she heard it from Jesus. All the way to heaven, Catherine, is heaven, because I am the way. And marriage is a way to heaven. Yes. Mm. Uh, it's probably the most obvious way that men choose to get safely home to God. Yes. They marry. And on the strength of eros, this force, this attraction, this energy, they choose other people. And these connections are filled with promise, life. And it needs to be respected. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Defended. Yeah. And, and I've often thought from our, from our wedding day when there was a blessing of the church and it talked about one of the fruits preserved from the garden, you know, that, that we are celebrating in marriage where there is a unity of what our, our, our bodies and our souls long for in that union. Um, there's something so beautiful about that. And that obviously is, is Christ's greatest example of His love for the church. I mean, there's so much packed into what we take as ordinary and common, the marriage and family life. I mean, are there other um, kind of depths that we should appreciate? Any deeper uh, understanding of that mystery of marriage and family, looking at God, looking at, at the garden, and what even the Gospels uh, speak of, sacred scriptures speak of? Well, there's many aspects, but one of them I would say fundamental and sadly called into question today, even in the church, is the is the confidence in the grace of the sacrament mm. that couples need to have because as Dr. Martin said, really in, in one sense, nothing is more ordinary in every day than, than the married life and family life, but it carries with it tremendous challenges, especially in a, the society in which we live, in which there's an exaltation of the individual uh, in, a, in a destructive way and, uh, and uh, no appreciation practically at all for the true meaning of human sexuality. Sexuality is now, as Pope Benedict said, seen, seen as a form of recreation for us all turned inward when the essential meaning of it is is going out uniting oneself to in a in a faithful and enduring love so I, I think that this is what we have to, to emphasize mm -hmm. most of all uh, during this October 2014 synod one couple and I'm very proud to say they came from the Diocese of La Crosse but that was the substance of their intervention they said we came to understand with time that in those challenges we faced in those difficult moments that through prayer and the sacraments, God grace, God's grace was always there for us. And as you say, they found that's their happiness in being faithful.
people. Mm. I'll give you a curious example of, the, of that truth. I've been going around speaking a lot uh, in, also in Europe about marriage and the family in the context of the Synod. And especially, I, I did about 10 presentations in Italy, but there, in, at every presentation, and last night it happened here too, individuals came to me and told me that, that they had been abandoned by their spouse at some point, right. but that they find their happiness in remaining faithful to that spouse because they know that they're truly bound to that spouse in marriage. They pray every day for the eternal salvation of that spouse and their happiness. As St. Catherine was, it's heaven is all the way along. Their heaven is in remaining faithful. Yes. And, yes. But if we take these kind of pragmatic approaches and so forth, which do not take account of the, of the reality of grace, then we just say to people, you can't do that. And even, uh, shockingly, some very highly placed prelates saying, you know, this is for the elite, this kind of life of fidelity. That's nonsense. That's We're right. all called to that kind of heroism. It's the yeah. universal call to holiness exactly. that values right. to reaffirm us so profoundly. You know, but I think people mm. might not express it this way, but they think, look, if Moses could permit it, why can't the Pope? Right. You know, but the fact is, Jesus in the incarnation is the one who makes all the difference. I mean, our Lord Himself is reflecting on the, on the fact that even ancient Israel, the holy people of God, prior to the incarnation, did not possess what the incarnation alone imparts. Yes. But once the incarnate Word has become flesh, once he's become the, the bridegroom, as it were, then suddenly we are endowed with a grace that doesn't make it easy, but it makes it possible, but it also makes it imperative. This is not like an ideal that is restored. It is an absolute norm that you can trace back to creation from yes. the beginning. Yes. But at the same time, the new creation is what elevates it to a level, in a sense, whereby we participate in Christ in a way that I dare say Adam and Eve really didn't do yet yeah, before right. the Incarnation. Right. There, there's a, a widespread ignorance, uh, not to say hostility, to what I might describe as the transfiguring effects of self-discipline, <laughs> of grace working on nature. Yes. It makes saints yes. of us all. If, if Christ is faithful, He's present in that marriage, it takes three to make a marriage, and he's there, he's not AWOL, he hasn't taken leave of that couple, then they ought not to abandon Christ or one another. He'll mm. remain with them. He's steadfast. He keeps his word. Yes. Yeah. And, and when just thinking something Scott said there just a moment ago about the, the incarnation, um, it, it struck me, you know, what, what can we learn? Are there any lessons to learn from the Holy Family that we read in the Gospels that, that could apply to families today that are reflecting on <coughs> life of the Holy Family? Well, all you have to do is, for instance, take the individual figures, you know, Mary herself at the Annunciation. Uh, she was a spouse to Joseph. They were husband and wife, although some people today claim that she was an unwed mother. That's false. That according to the, the marriage rituals in those times, they were considered husband and wife, and that's why Joseph had to consider divorcing her when he discovered yeah. she was pregnant. But if we think of Mary trying, she said, how can this happen to me? I know not man. And the angel said to her, you can explain to her, the Holy Spirit was, will overshadow you, and the, he is to be conceived in you, is, is uh, you know, will save, is the Savior, is the Christ. Then she accepted it. But mm. that, as Dr. Ann was saying before, that doesn't mean it was easy for her. That's we, right, yeah. We talk about the seven dolors of Mary, the seven sorrows mm. of Mary, and so forth. But in the same way with St. Joseph, think of that, dear man. Uh, if it weren't for those visits, during his sleep from the angels who reassured him, he, he wouldn't have, but every time he had a message from God, he said, yes, I, 
he, he cooperated. We have immediately the, the, the trials of the birth of Jesus alone in these very poor circumstances, mm. the flight into Egypt, and, mm. and, and, and then the, uh, one can imagine, the sorrow of the losing of Jesus in the temple. And if we reflect deeply on it, we can see that this mystery of the life of the Holy Trinity is, is imaged in a very particular way in the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Mm. In fact, there's an ancient devotion that a little bit fell out of, of uh, popularity to the three hearts, mm. the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and the Pierced Heart of Joseph. The reason it fell out of favor was some people became extreme and they began to claim that St. Joseph also had been assumed into heaven, but the devotion doesn't, doesn't predicate that, doesn't necess necessitate, necessitate that uh, affirmation, it means simply that their hearts were completely one with the heart of God. How yes, beautiful. yes, yes. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. In the Catholic theology of marriage, we routinely refer to marriage as a sacrament, as a sign, and immediately we think of how marriage is a sign of God's love for us, because this is what it's been throughout salvation history. But in a less obvious way, we also want to understand that marriage is a sign insofar as it signals to us and signifies for us that we are capable of a love that is like God's love for us. That when we form our own marriages by forming a sign of His love, we're called to form a relationship that is noble, that is dignified, that is godlike in the love that we have for each other as husband and wife in the love that we have for each other as man and woman. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with His Eminence, Cardinal Burke, about marriage and family. Um, Cardinal, as we look forward, um, there's a lot of challenges uh, that, are, that are confronting marriage and family. But I think it's important for us to first start with, why does the church care uh, about marriage and family life? There's, there's, why don't we just let it go? You know, does, is, there, is there any need for us to step in uh, as a church in regards to marriage and family issues? Well, the, the simple fact, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand it, is that the first cell of life of the church is the family. Mm. The, the church is incarnated, first of all, in the love of a husband and wife, and that love shared with with their with their children and in the ancient church it was they called the the home ecclesiola the little church and the, the whole notion was that yes the family of course went to the to the church the local church with other families to worship but they brought that grace into their home that the grace given for instance in the sacraments and so forth was primarily for for the home, for the, for the and, family. And it's not simply a function of grace, it's also an expression of nature, society, mm -hmm. until quite recently when it went 
off its head. Yes. Pretty demented, but but historically societies were in favor of marriage because Absolutely. that's the only way you can have a future. That's right. And that's society right. insisted that the price you pay for the love uh, you express is fidelity. Yes. It, it's free, it's faithful, and it's forever. And the identification of the family as ecclesiola, as the domestic church, you know, is go, it goes back to creation. When you look at the patriarchal period set out in Genesis, the patriarchs as fathers are priests. They're building altars and offering sacrifice. They're kings and they're ruling as well as prophets who are receiving divine revelation, the word of the Lord. But there is no church and then family. And, and, and this, I think, sets a, a paradigm for us to reflect upon because grace doesn't abolish nature, it heals and yes. perfects it. So when the divine family enters human history, the human family that has been broken by sin is healed. Mm. And I think that healing process is sort of like, it's, it's good news, but it seems almost too good to be true and too hard to be done. But the incarnation again, and you know, here we are entering into the celebration of the Jubilee of Divine Mercy. And I think people tend to forget that mercy is not just God saying, oh, boys will be boys, I understand, you know, I'm lenient, I'll pardon, I never get tired of forgiving, and thank God he doesn't. But that forgiving love is also what instills heroic virtue in us, where we, we, I could ransack my soul and not find it apart from God, but I'm not apart from God, you know? And so that longing that, that mercy gives, and then the capacity that mercy supplements, you know, to me, we're really short-selling mercy when we just make it seem as though God is patient with us. God is also empowering us, you know, and that's the, the higher half, as it were. Yeah, that's what I think Dr. Martin was referring to before, too, of self-discipline. The yeah. fundamental action in us of grace is purification. Right. And if we read the lives of any of the saints, they didn't start out as these perfect angelic beings. Many of them were had difficult characters, and even in their youth, other, you know, had troubles. But they always were responding to grace, which eventually uh, purified their souls, disciplined them to be what, who we really are. Right. And that, that we need absolutely. And so the idea of mercy is just being a kind of a salve over whatever we're doing is ridiculous. It is. Yeah, right, uh, right. When we know God's mercy in our lives, we feel this tremendous call to overcome sin, to overcome our, our weaknesses, and to be more for God, to, to live he more He who's forgiven much, loves much. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. So, right. So Look we, at St. Mary Magdalene, for instance. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so we know that the church has a particular interest in the, church, in, in the family, the, uh, both the, the, as the domestic uh, church, as well as the, uh, the natural foundation of all of society. Um, it's, you know, uh, there's so many reasons that we have to, to go and protect and defend and promote um, uh, marriage and family life. But what, when you look out uh, from your perspective, what are some of the greatest challenges? Um, I mean, sometimes it, it, it's good just to recognize, what are some of the greatest challenges to marriage and family life right now? I would say a fundamental challenge is catechesis, to, mm. to raise children and young people in an understanding of marriage and family. And we've come through several decades of, of really vacuous and sometimes erroneous catechesis such that young people mm. arrive at that time when naturally they, they hear the call to the married life and, and they don't have a fundamental understanding of what the call is. And I, I can't stress this enough, we have to return to a solid catechesis. Now when I was a child, we had the Baltimore Catechism, but we were taught very firmly the notion of marriage, family, the virtues which helped us to be good children, you know, fathers and mothers to be good parents, um, the grace, all the whole 
beautiful reality of marriage. And so I think that catechesis is so necessary because also you have to take into account that you've got this pervasive media which are giving a mess which are giving a message to people that's completely contrary, saying, you know, this is all for you, yes. you know, take whatever you can get, and you know, yes, this person pleases you now, but if at some point you don't care anymore for her or him, discard and move on mm. to somebody yeah, else. It really is an anti-catechesis. Oh, it, it like, is. You know, it's, and, well, and then the pornography thing right, is absolutely right. corrosive, and, yes. and that's <laughs> and that's reaching young children in in middle school and so forth, and really causing them the most profound difficulties for the rest of their lives. I've, yes. I've, I've dealt pastorally with people and they tell me that they started out as children. Somebody showed them this and they became addicted to this and yes. it, it really, it destroys in a certain sense your affect for other people in general, but especially for the other sex. And it's, uh, but anyway, those are just some of the, so there you need a strong catechesis and it, it comes back to the teaching the virtues. Right. From yeah. from childhood on, you know, to be to be modest, to be pure in our thoughts, and so forth. Yeah. The, the the condition of uh, your eminence that you describe, uh, and which I think we all uh, deplore, bespeaks a, a crisis of faith, hmm. of of belief. People just don't know what they're supposed to know. Yes. But also a crisis of of courage because they they don't have the nerve uh, uh, to practice what they believe. Yes. And maybe among some of the uh, the bishops, uh, there is a certain failure of nerve, a crisis of courage. They know this is the body of revelation. This is what I'm charged with preserving and defending, articulating and, and living. But I just don't seem to have the kidney uh, to speak back to the culture because it's so overwhelming. This and you accommodate between, yourself to right, it. This relationship between faith and culture is so key and we cannot yes. be naive yeah, anymore right. about, uh, uh, oftentimes people quote the the discourse of, of St. John the 23rd at the opening of the Second Vatican Council. And he was full of enthusiasm about the culture and convinced that it was going to embrace the yeah. church's restatement of its teaching and so forth. And simply, in, in some way, he didn't see what was, was right. coming. Yeah. And, and instead, by the time we come to Pope Blessed John, Blessed Paul the Sixth. Right. He's he's he said the the smoke of, of Satan has yeah. entered into the very sanctuaries I, of the church. We thought there was a period of light coming. Instead, we find ourselves immersed in darkness, and and so forth. So yeah, instead of that Pentecost, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I do we got think, a Babylonian yes. captivity. <laughs> yes. I, I do think I, I can relate to what Saint John the Twenty Third desired because. You know, it's essentially like Palm Sunday yeah. when everybody's celebrating Jesus, you know. Yeah. But we tend to forget how short-lived that is, you know. And then how a sequence of trials is what the body of Christ undergoes until the Paschal mystery unfolds before the very eyes. But I mean, the eyes of people who are not yet ready to comprehend the depth of the mystery That's that right. they're witnessing, you know. And I, I see this as a key, you know, when, when, when Mike just asked you, you know, to go down the a list of the challenges. Your Eminence, you didn't, you know, yeah, begin with the litany that most people can recite from memory in terms of pornography and divorce and contraception and, and all, you know, same-sex marriage. And, you know, I think at the root of it, it really is the failure of catechesis. I mean, it's sort of like we can point to all the different shades of darkness, but there's a light switch there. Flip it on, will you please? You know, because once we proclaim the gospel in evangelizing and then unpack it through catechizing, then suddenly the sacraments are the most desirable things on the planet. Yeah. And, and people have a natural hunger and thirst for this. 
I find in going around just simply enunciating, I never have anything original to say. It's just simply <laughs> right. As I tell people, my ideas won't save your soul. If I'm coming here and giving you my ideas, that's bad news. Yeah. I, but true for the, all. The, 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 the truth, there is in the, in, the, in the heart of man a hunger and thirst for that. And I've experienced this over and over. People come up to me and say, thank you so much for, for saying this. Even people who are struggling, they're in mm. difficulties, people who aren't believers, but they, they recognize a truth when it's, well, the truth when it's enunciated. Yeah. There, there and I think there's something there really powerful about the, the idea that you just, you know, kind of Scott has just said that, that we're looking at the idea that a, a good, the best defense is an offense. You know, that, that we're not looking at what the world and the culture is putting at us and saying, let's go back to the truth of who we are in marriage and family. And that is the best defense against all sure. these other uh, challenges that do and confront us. And when we're us. silent like you're talking before, then we give the impression we have nothing to say. Nothing distinctive to offer. Nothing distinctive to offer. That, to offer. Yeah, that we're just yeah. part of it too. We're just going or, along. Yeah. Or if we have something to say, it's always no, <laughs> no, That's right. no. Yeah, well, but the yes, what we're affirming is so much yeah. This was a point that Cardinal Ratzinger had made many years ago about a bourgeois Catholicism yeah. that refuses to place any demands upon yes. itself. And so it has nothing to offer. Yeah. Uh, and, and people abandon it in droves because it's really contemptible. Yes. Yeah. It's mediocre, and the mediocre are always at their best. Yeah. I mean, we've lost really a sense of the sacred. Uh, we've forgotten God. And, and Dostoevsky uh, has that prophetic warning, if he doesn't exist, and we live as if he didn't exist, a practical atheism, then anything is permitted. You, you can abandon the woman you married, mm -hmm. you can kill her offspring, yeah. uh, you can marry your brother, I mean, yeah. none of this That's is right. You can abuse children, you can... Anything. Yeah. There's no, yeah, yeah. no bounds. And I mean, as we were kind of chatting uh, in, in between the segments, you know, uh, Father Terry, uh, our former president, once said, you know, the age of casual Catholicism is over. Oh, absolutely. Courageous Catholicism, yes. and I mean, it sounds like what, at the very heart of what you're talking about. I mean, there's many challenges facing us, but we really need to go back and say who we are from both the beginning through Scripture and, and proclaim that truth loudly. So, when, when when you look at the very controversial issues, have, have we paved the way for the so-called same-sex marriage with um, Catholics and, and, and other good-minded people accepting contraception, accepting uh, no-fault divorce? Oh, Is that a connection there? Are oh, we no, absolutely. So much goes back to the uh, the cold question of contraception. The minute that you separate the, the conjugal union, separate from the conjugal union, it's essentially procreative nature, then you introduce a concept of human sexuality which is completely distorted and very quickly becomes mm. a kind of recreational sport, Ooh, a way yeah, to, yeah. to, and this has nothing to do with human sexuality. It's not my, my way to gratify myself or to seek pleasure and so forth. It's a beautiful thing which permits me, if, if God gives me that call, to offer myself completely uh, to another and even for those of us who are celibate, our celibacy is embraced in order to be, uh, to give that same love, that same fatherly love in the case of priests, uh, but in a spiritual way. And this was the great insight, of course, of Humanae Vitae, uh, the, the, the truth of which, the grandeur of its vision, really does need to be recaptured and restored. I mean, he sort of rediscovered 
the meaning of the sexual act, that it's simultaneously unitive and procreative. It's got to be open to love. It has to be open to life. Yeah. Well, Benedict XVI picked up on that in a, in a tremendous way in Caritas and Veritate, and he has a long section on Humanae Vitae and saying that this is the way to come to understand true human development and, and, and progress is by recovering that teaching. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. If there's one great challenge to living out God's plan for sex, love, and marriage, and one great challenge to proclaiming God's plan for sex, love, and marriage, it's getting people to confront the kind of despair that they have in overcoming their own sinfulness. We grasp right away that God's plan is asking so much of us and offering so much for us, but then we begin to doubt. Are we capable of such a lofty way of living? Are we worthy of someone's lofty love? And confronting and resolving this doubt really is the greatest challenge to living out God's plan for us. The church recognizes the sacrament of marriage as a sacrament raised to that level by Jesus Christ himself. That coming together of the man and the wife in that special union in which Christ is part of that union, pouring out the grace upon them to be able to live out the sacramental life that they are called to live as husband and wife. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, we're recording this show right now in the studios uh, here at Franciscan University. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment here. Um, our regular panelists are faculty here at Franciscan University. Um, Your Eminence, we've been talking about marriage and family, and, and we had the contrast in the last segment about two popes, uh, John the 23rd and Paul the uh, with kind of different perspectives, if you will, at where we're at with the culture. But I think tying the two together might help us look forward at this, at this uh, segment. Uh, John the 23rd called for a new Pentecost and kind of a new engagement. Uh, but then he had Paul the Sixth looking at the culture and, and seeing forward to where we're going. Um, in meshing these two, I almost see a need for the new evangelization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as we look particularly at marriage and family life, what could a witness uh, look like, or why is a witness in marriage and family life so important, particularly as we look at the new evangelization? Well, uh, your point is absolutely correct. Uh, it's interesting in the account in, in the Gospel according to Matthew when our Lord sets forth the teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. The disciples got the message and they said, well, if that's the case, maybe it's better not to marry. And he's, right. he responds to them basically indicating that, no, God gives the grace to those who are called mm -hmm. uh, to this state in life. And so I, I think that we can't become intimidated by the culture. Mm. Uh, at the same time, we have to have the profoundest confidence in, in the grace of Christ because that's eternal. 
and we know that Christ is with us always and that at the, on the final day he's going to come and bring to consummation his whole saving work as it's being lived out in our lives. Mm. And so I think that the important thing is in, in family life, what's the witness to be given? I think number one is prayer. Mm. And, and, and devotion in the home, and of course, the, the sacraments as the heart of family life. When I was growing up, I, it was very clear to me that regular confession and, and Sunday Mass were, were just the heart of our family life, that we wouldn't have had a family life without it. And then the praying, praying together the rosary, the enthroning the uh, sacred heart in our home and so forth. And then the, the time that parents and children spend together, and this is, I think, a, a tremendous weakness in our society today. We have so much activity and I understand that it's all good. The children are running to sports and dancing and whatever all it might be, but there has to be time. It used to be around the dinner table and, and I think it should come back to that time when when the family members can sit down and simply be themselves and the parents can speak to their mm -hmm. the children about important things and, and the children can open up their minds and hearts because the, the, the children have the capacity to evangelize too oh, out of the, the mouths of babes. Yeah, and, but if there's no time together, how is that going to happen? Well, we, in the, in the, the meantime, we have to get rid of that 800-pound gorilla that is sitting on the, <laughs> on the dining room table, the culture. Yeah. And you mentioned that people are so easily intimidated by it. And, and that's uh, odd because the culture is one of death, yeah. uh, Thanatos. Uh, and uh, how can that intimidate anybody? It doesn't represent life. It's mm. not really interested in sex, real sex, authentic sex. And it doesn't care about love. No. Yeah. And wh why should we be... Uh, bothered by that. Uh, we offer something that is so beautiful and so comprehensively That's good. The Africans get it. Yes. They see marriage as liberating. Yes. I mean, they, they live in the midst of a culture of Polygamy, and when you get married to one woman or one man, that's freeing. Yes, right. and, and that's the very nature of making a vow. You burn your bridges. You sort of uh, commit yourself to one person, mm -hmm. and, and that's very exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the problem, at least in Europe, is that you have a tax system whereby those who are in the church are obliged to pay a lot of money to the state, and the church gets it. But once, you know, marriage has been redefined, once marriage laws are being enforced so that those who are divorced and remarried, you know, are no longer part of the church, then suddenly you're cutting off a revenue stream. You know, so often the church is being analyzed critically by the media for the ulterior motives and the hidden agendas. Sometimes it's fun to shed a little light on the opposite side and to see that in certain European countries there are enormous revenue sources that would come if you could compromise the church's teaching on the absolute indissolubility of marriage. You're talking tens of millions of dollars or marks or whatever. That's right. And, and, and I think that is what makes the culture, you know, it reinforces that bourgeois Catholicism right. that Ratzinger was speaking of that you mentioned earlier. But I do think, you know, we've got to take this off the shelf. We've got to proclaim it. I remember when I was becoming a Catholic in the mid-80s, I discovered Familiaris Consortio, the teaching of John Paul on the family. And it was, it was like uh, a laser beam. I, I, you know, it was almost painful, but it was so illuminating because, you know, like most Americans, I tended to think of sexuality, belonging in marriage, but it's a matter of private pleasure. Mm -hmm. I'm discovering through the church's teaching in John Paul, it's an act of public service. It's like, what? You know, <laughs> yeah. we celebrate people who are firemen or policemen or who are in the armed services for giving up their bodies, at least being willing to, 
to preserve life, to save life, to rescue people. Well, what about giving life? Yes. What about nurturing life? I mean, as great as it is to see people laying down their lives on the, on the battlefield, it's a much greater thing to see that when people lay down their bodies for the purpose of this self-giving love, yes. they're performing an act of public service for the common good immeasurably greater than those who have to kill to kind of protect our national interests. And it was like, hello, where have I been for so long? This is embedded in the Christian tradition. I mean, granted, Protestantism lost it, but America also. I think sometimes the greatest gift Catholic Americans could give to the country we love is the Catholic faith in its fullness. (laughs) And to understand the faith as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that it's not a question of politics or of of, uh, some kind of institution that's self-perpetuating itself and so forth, but that it's communicating Jesus Christ, relating to Him, and that's what gives life to the church, and and that's what sustains the church. And this whole idea of uh, of a kind of a political Christianity and so forth it is so damaging. I remember in Novo Millennio Eneonte at the conclusion of the great Jubilee year, yes. Pope John Paul II talked about, you know, people think that we need some magical solution to the, the problems of our time or some new program. And he states very clearly, he said, the program today of the church is this, the pastoral program is the same as ever. It is Jesus Christ alive in the tradition. That's right. And so getting right back to what you're saying, if we live intensely our Catholic faith, uh, liturgically or teaching in the, in the moral life, which is living intensely in Jesus Christ, this is transforming, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. because it, 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 it has the power of God itself. Right. So you talked about catechesis. Um, how do we talk about, or what, what recommendations or, or what could priests and parishes be doing to better prepare uh, couples for the sacrament of marriage? Well, I see start right out in, in, the, in the elementary catechesis and, and uh, also with the young people and in the adult catechesis with just teaching the truth about marriage. People, we can't take these things for granted anymore. Mm, the culture mm. is completely foreign to it, and we have not. Uh, we have not, with the pride that we should, pronounce the truth of the faith. It has nothing to do with how great I am. It's it's how great God is. And, and but we're the we have to give voice to this, yes. and uh, so that I think is 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 key. And then, of course, with the marriage preparation, to do it seriously. What does that mean for you? I mean, you, you've prepared couples yes. for marriage. You've overseen uh, priests. Um, you know, for those who are watching us right now, what, what does that look like? What is serious preparation in your mind? In, really a, in a certain way, I always found probably the most helpful way was simply to prepare them for the, the rite of marriage, the liturgy itself, because in doing that, the liturgy, the, the, the law of belief uh, is, is postulated by the, the law of worship. And so if, if you go through the readings from the Holy Scriptures and so forth on marriage, mm. if you prepare them, you mentioned before about the nuptial blessing, yes. but the, all of the essential elements of the marriage rite, the questioning of the spouses before they give their consent, the consent itself, yes. the exchange of rings as a symbol of the new reality which is, has come through the, the the, the husband and wife ministering the sacrament to each other. Right. In a certain way, the, the church doesn't do anything. It, 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 blesses, it. Yeah. it witnesses what the, the, the couple does. Yeah. And uh, 
But that I found a very effective way. And, mm. and then to, to address particular challenges for married life today with couples. And it's true, you know, priests say, well, they're all enamored with each other and they won't listen and so forth. But they will if you take your time with them and, and they understand. And if you, you draw know, them, so the church doesn't yeah. do anything, it just witnesses. That's true. At the same time, it's helpful to remind ourselves that the, the bride and the groom are the church. Yes, of course. I Baptized right. and confirmed That's and right. ministering a sacrament. Yes. So the clergy witnesses, but the laity are being empowered to go forth in this kind of But But certainly the church as a bride, uh, the nuptial body of God, uh, is the mediation for dispensing the grace well, they, and the mercy. Well, the, right. the couple Christ. has the right intention right. in marrying because they're alive in, in Christ, because right. they're members of the church. And so the couple intends what the church intends, as St. Right. John Paul II said. Um, but the, the fact is that the couple are the ministers of the sacrament right. to each yeah, other. Can, yeah. Even yeah. if years later they say, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, because I don't know a single married couple yeah. that That's really right. understood what yeah. they were getting right. themselves well, into. Well, no one knows. I mean, the day I was ordained, I couldn't see everything right. that was, was lying sacrifice. ahead. That's but right. that's what you, you said before. It's the greatness of it is that you give yourself not knowing, yeah. and, and you commit yourself that for the rest of my life, I will give myself as husband or as wife or as I think it was uh, Immanuel Kant who described marriage as a contract that allows each partner to sort of monopolize the sexual organ of the other partner. <laughs> now that's a secular view, a reductionist. I mean, the Christian view is, is, is far more expansive. Uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand speaks of the mystery of mutual self donation. Yes. You give everything, not yes. just yes. the sexual organs. That's the easy part. Yes. You give yourself, body and soul, to this person, and the two become one flesh. That is a great mystery. But you can't pull it off, you can't sustain it without grace. So couples need to welcome God to the wedding. That's right. I mean, my wife and I were at a wedding this summer, and it was a beautiful affair. I mean, meticulously organized, uh, orchestrated. It was gorgeous. But God was deliberately omitted. He wasn't mentioned until, uh, in this phony way, at the reception, they invited somebody to invoke his blessing. I mean, it's never too late to invite Jesus to the party. But why wasn't he invited to the wedding yes. itself? Because that marriage is not going to work. No, it's right. not going to yeah. last. And from the very beginning, <laughs> right? Even the natural sacrament is always there. Are always three parties. There's the man. The the woman and God. Well, that right. was the way he intended it from the right. beginning. All right. I'm going to throw you a very uh, challenging question. Um, so when somebody, just thinking about some of the, the, the challenging situations we're confronted with today, somebody who has been divorced and remarried outside the church, uh, what do we say to them? Or how does the church respond to them to help them with the reality of where they are and how they can return to communion with Christ? What do we do with that very challenging situation? Well, first of all, we we help them to understand that they're really bound to a marriage in which they're in fact not living, unless they're firmly convinced that the the first marriage was null because of some uh, reason, a, impediment an, a, a, an impediment or the exclusion of a good of marriage or whatever else. Uh, but if indeed they say, well, no, it was a, a true marriage, then we have to try, we help them, and we, we can help them, to live in fidelity to that marriage and still at the same time 
to fulfill obligations and justice which they have perhaps to children who have been procreated in this Other. irregular union and so forth. Uh, and that's been going on in the church forever. When I was a boy, I remember I grew up in a farming community. We went to 10 o'clock mass on Sunday. There was a couple there. They had a farm not too far from ours. They never received communion. When I got old enough to sort of recognize this, I asked my father, and he explained to me that the, the man had been married before and had divorced his wife and that they were, you know, for that reason, they could not receive communion. And he didn't, it wasn't, it was very understandable to him. And I have to say it was understandable to me, but the mm -hmm. Priest always treated them with the greatest kindness, and, and they lived a good and decent life. Right. And so that's, we have to help people to respond to God's grace in the situation in which they find themselves. Yes. And I don't think we should also, now the idea of the brother and sister relationship, where a, a, a parties cooperating with God's grace come to understand that now they, they need to live together because of the care of the children or whatever, but they're going to live as brother and sister in a chaste way mm. to honor the, the marriage to which either one or both of the parties is bound. And that's not that's not for the elite. That's yeah. for, for everyday Catholics yeah. who are called to, to respond to God's grace. Those are some of the ways. Uh, certainly, the church has to be welcoming and, and so forth, but, but welcoming doesn't mean ignoring the objective situation of the person, and that's, I think, where we go wrong. We think we, to welcome someone or to be kind to someone means that we pretend that, that everything's just fine. Well, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. The church recognizes the sacrament of marriage as a sacrament raised to that level by Jesus Christ himself. That coming together of the man and the wife in that special union in which Christ is part of that union, pouring out the grace upon them to be able to live out the sacramental life that they are called to live as husband and wife. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about marriage and family life. This is our final segment. Regis, could you start us off? Yes, uh, uh, I know I speak for my, my colleagues, uh, uh, Cardinal, uh, in, in uh, commending you for your witness, a witness of heroism, a witness of, uh, of truth. Uh, you may have to pay for it, uh, who knows. Uh, your uh, great patron, John Fisher, paid for it. He lost his head before he could put on his hat. Uh, you haven't lost yours yet, but you have drawn the line in the sand, and who knows uh, what may happen, uh, who may try and transgress that line. But it's a clear line, a courageous stance you've taken in defense, really, of the ordinary decencies yes. of human life, what Burke called the decent drapery of human life, respect for nature. Yes. You know, people come together and they burn their bridges. They exercise their liberty by saying, only you and forever, and I want to be faithful, and I want this to be fruitful, and I want God to be somehow a party uh, to this love affair. I mean, that's, that's honorable, and you're one of the few who has come forward to uphold it, to defend it. Mm -hmm. And I think that indicates really the importance of prayer. Yes. Because without it, we're lost. Absolutely. It's the oxygen of, uh, of the spiritual life. I, I oftentimes remind my students at the beginning of a new course that, that, that God instituted prayer so that he might confer upon us, his creatures, 
the dignity of becoming a cause. Mm -hmm. By our prayers, we literally cause things to happen, like the successful outcome of, of a synod mm -hmm. in Rome. I mean, it really does matter what you all decide. But unless you decide uh, what has already been decided by God, then we are in a world of trouble. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Scott? I think it's helpful, even for bishops, to recognize that you can't authorize the unauthorizable, yes. you know, uh, but you can proclaim it in a way that the God, that the, that the God of heaven will bless. You know, I, I also look at how it is that people give a counsel of despair and call it the good news. It, it's, it's analogous to, you know, going to a hospital where a lot of people are seriously ill, but instead of giving them medicine that might, you know, require them suffering, just keep heaping up the morphine. You know, just deaden the pain, you know, deaden the kind. They'll sleep through it and then they'll die. That kind of counsel of despair, I think, is, what's, is what people mistake for the good news. You know, and on the flip side, I would say, building on something that you mentioned earlier, that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I mean, that is the link. That is the fountainhead, the wellspring. And at the same time, we hear non-Catholics speak of that. And I want to say, well, no, we mean more than that because we're not dating Jesus or cohabiting with him. It's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship that doesn't imply anything less personal, but much more intensely personal. And also something that is indissoluble. And, you know, when we distinguish between contract and covenant, you know, this is yours, that is mine, and a covenant, I am yours and you are mine. But sometimes we don't even treat the covenant as though it's sacred. It's though it's long as we both shall love. Well, a covenant is not less binding than a contract. It's immeasurably more. And if that was true in the old covenant, it's not less but more true in the new since it's been elevated to the level of a sacrament. Just letting the good news out, it's like, you know, what Spurgeon said about defending a lion. Let him out of his cage, he'll do a better job of defending himself. If we let the gospel, according to the Catholic faith, out in its fullness, people are going to be amazed by how hard it is, but how exciting. And I thank you for your faithful witness to this, and also for the gift of your friendship to me and Kimberly over the course of years and years. It is such a source of consolation. Mm. Thank you, Scott. Your Eminence? Well, I, it's been wonderful to take part in this conversation, and I, I thank both uh, Professor Martin and, and Professor Hahn for their very kind words. It, it is really, I consider myself to be just doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a, as a shepherd of the flock. But I, I would like to just maybe close on the, this notion that we are alive in Christ. And for us, this personal relationship with Christ is essentially in the church. It can't be otherwise. It is his mystical body. He comes to us in the church and through the whole richness of the, the teaching, the sacramental and prayer life of the church and, and her, her, her moral teaching. And I would just underline the virtue of obedience. Uh, today, so oftentimes, one is given the impression through the media, just as you say, uh, or Dr. Martin is also re referring that, well, the bishops in the Synod or in the Holy Father, they can you know, decide whatever they want. But we're all called to be obedient, and that's the fundamental virtue of our Lord in, in the Gospel, in whom we live, is to do the will of the Father. Mm. And so we have to be about discovering ever more deeply what is the will of the Father, 
and thanks be to God, he's made it known to us, both in our own human nature, but also even more wonderfully in, in divine revelation and in the, in the teaching of the church. And so we, that makes, calls us to an obedience beginning with the Holy Father. Mm. Uh, recently someone said to me, well, the Holy Father has the fullness of power. He can do whatever he wants. And I said, no, the, the fullness of power uh, is not absolute power. The fullness of power is to do the Father's will, is to do what Christ uh, wants him to do as, as his vicar. And the and Pope so, would agree 100%. I'm sure, yes, he would. And so also for all of us. And so, and in the married life, uh, this obedience to the will of the Father is exactly this oblation of self for the other. For the, in the old days, we said that people marry to save each other's soul. And that really, it, it maybe sounds a little odd to us today, but it's the truth mm. that this is the way to salvation for those who are called to marriage. And that is through obedience mm. to, to the will of God to live a, a union which is, is faithful, enduring unto death and open to the, the gift of human life and, and new human life. And what a tremendous mm. uh, gift God has given us from the very beginning, the, a gift that Christ devoted so much attention to and made clear that his grace, his saving grace had elevated now so that no one should fear if he's called or she's called to the married life, no one should fear that the, the grace of Christ will be lacking to him or her. Mm. So this has been a, a, a just a wonderful conversation and I, I hope that it will bring hope and encouragement to many who hear it. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program and to take the admonishment of uh, Cardinal Burke here, if you, first thing, if you wanna go a little deeper into marriage and family, we have this free handout. It's actually uh, given by permission from the Vatican Radio, Cardinal Burke, Christ's truth is at the heart of uh, marriage. So you can get that at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, you know, to, to only add one, one measure uh, to what has already been shared, if we go deeper into revealing and understanding and recapturing the mystery and the beauty of marriage uh, in our own lives and in the world we live, and if we renew ourselves in a, a daily commitment to return that first love, uh, to return that passion that we have in our own marriage, we can change the world. Thanks for watching Franciscan University Presents. Um, the mission of Franciscan University is to, to form those who are going to go out and transform the world for Christ. And I want to invite you to be a part of that mission, um, to come and take classes here on our campus in Steubenville, Ohio, or online. Come and be a part of our, our dynamic summer conferences, or join us on one of our pilgrimages, or reach us at faithandreason.com and be equipped for the new evangelization. Um, Your Eminence, could you give us a final blessing? Certainly. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and your homes and remain with you forever. Amen. 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 To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.